It's encouraging, isn't it? Thank you, Kara, Elise, and Kim. Beautiful. We're looking at Ephesians 6. We're finishing Ephesians this morning. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 11 this summer. We're going to be going through that chapter little bit by little bit, and we're going to encourage uh, the youth and, the, uh, and their parents and the children to let's memorize this chapter of Hebrews 11. So that means me too. So we've got some work to do, but I think this chapter of Hebrews 11 is going to be really good for us this summer. But for, let's look at God's word this morning. If we think about why is life so hard and the Bible makes it clear we're in a threefold battle. We have hearts that are corrupt, and they're still they're, they're being changed, but we still have this internal struggle with sin. And then we have this problem with uh, the ensnarement of the world, and our hearts getting caught up in that, the allurements of this world. But then we're also told in Scripture that there's a real devil, and there's a real spiritual battle that's going on. And so the Apostle Paul, right after he gets done talking about real common household stuff like marriage and parenting and children and work, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers Cosmocrats is the idea of the word behind that. Over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to this end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, come and show us the battle, the battle that Christ has won, and is winning for us presently in our daily struggles. Lord, those, many of us, beaten up, harassed by the enemy. Lord, give us the truth. And may we believe it. And may we know more that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Speak now to the deep parts of our hearts that are slow to believe the good news of the gospel. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us about many things that we cannot see. And our eyes have to be opened, like Elisha's servant. If you remember the story when Elisha's servant was with Elisha, and he was very scared because the human armies were everywhere on the mountainside. And Elisha prayed that his eyes would be opened. 
And then I, uh, Elisha's servant saw that the heavenly armor, uh, heavenly armors were ev- armies were everywhere and so much greater than the other armies. And our eyes have to be opened. Otherwise, we think that this life is really, it's a playground rather than a battleground. And we'll do a little bit of praying, a little bit of fellowship, a little bit of word of God, a little bit of church, a little bit of war. You don't fight a big war, a real war, that's greater than any war, any world war, any nuclear war. You don't fight that with a little war. We have to give it everything. And that's why the Bible takes this so seriously here. Four times we're called to stand. And it's a very close hand-to-hand physical combat against unseen powers of darkness in heavenly realms. The Bible contains 39 references to just the beast alone in Revelation. And then 13 references to the dragon in Revelation. 54 references to Satan And then 34 more to the devil throughout the Bible. There's well over 150 references to the devil. And let me tell you, he's not red and he doesn't have horns and a pitchfork. It's never obvious most of the time when we are dealing with spiritual warfare. It's very, very subtle. The serpent is very crafty in Genesis 3 when he shows up on the scene. And Paul tells us in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Referring back to Genesis 3. Soon he will crush him under your feet, but not yet. Satan isn't done yet. Not until Revelation 20 is fulfilled. And we're not there yet. And so no book of the Bible makes his spiritual warfare more vivid and more real than the book of Revelation. Have you ever read the book? When was the last time you read it? Just take up the book and read it. I know we're more interested in Wonder Woman, probably right now, most of us. It's much more appealing than something real and a real battle. But the book of Revelation needs to be read. I remember seeing a kid one time when I was years ago Witnessing in Sunset Park in Brooklyn when I was in college, we used to go down there, and this kid, he had been reading the book of Revelation, and he was scared to death. And I was handing out tracts, and he, he needed help, man. I had been reading the book of Revelation. I am scared. The Lord's going to return, and I'm not ready. You know, we love going to the zoo. We love getting up close to those animals, animals that could eat us alive. You're looking at like wolves, leopards, and tigers, and lions, bears. But they're caged, and they're behind bars, and they're safe. But would you go to the zoo if there were no bars, no cages, no barriers? You wouldn't go unless you had proper weapons at your disposal. And we have to be reminded as Christians... When you read a book like Revelation, which we need to read because it gives us the heavenly perspective where the curtains pull back and you're shown what's really going on in the heavenly realms that's affecting this world. And it's all about Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. You see, the reality is this world isn't a walk in the zoo. It's not even a safari. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5 that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There's a hunt going on, according to the Bible. 
and we are the hunted, and we are the prey. So finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Well, how do I do that? Next verse, keep reading. Put on the full armor of God, the whole armor, so you can take your stand against the devil's methods, his schemes, his craftiness. He's good at what he does. And we have to put on the whole armor. And you know, you know Paul's chained to a, a Roman guard here, and he's probably looking at all the time at all this garb that they wear. And in the, if you go off to battle, what happens if you just put on half the armor? Well, I'm going to go out, and I'm not going to wear my breastplate of righteousness today. Not really going to need that. Not going to need a helmet of salvation. Don't need that today. Don't need to read the Bible. Don't need the belt of truth. I'm too busy. I got stuff to do. I'm important. I'm an important person. I don't need to be reading the word that much. I got too much to do. I don't need the belt of truth. I don't need to be telling anybody about the gospel. I just hibernate. I try to hide so I don't have to be ready to share the gospel with anybody. What would happen if we just went out and we weren't ready with any of these pieces of armor? We weren't taking up the, the wet sword that's, that's this iron shield that's now got leather over and dipped in water so when these flaming arrows are being shot at you, you're able to put them out. What happens? You say, well, I don't need a sword. I don't need faith. I don't need that. What would happen? You see, we need all the armor, otherwise we get shot to pieces. There's a real hunt going on, and the enemy is very subtle. And sometimes it's helpful to read some of the, the great men of old. And this week I was reading some of Thomas Watson, a Puritan, and Thomas Brooks, a Puritan. And then Martin Luther has lots to say. As he, and there's an ink stain in... in uh, the castle where he, was, where he was writing the New Testament and translating into German, he had such struggles with the, with the devil himself that at this castle there is a stain where he took an ink and threw it at what, in his battle with the devil. And that stain is still there for people to see, and that's Luther wrestling. And Thomas Watson in his book, All Things for Good, he said this. This is an old Puritan, he said... Uh, that Satan tempts a man to covetousness and extortion under a pretense of providing for his family. You see, the enemy's schemes are very, very subtle. It's okay to fudge those numbers because your supervisor isn't really paying you a fair wage anyway. It's okay. They don't respect you, and everybody else is lazy and incompetent anyway, and I'm the one doing all the work. They won't need this. They won't miss this. Just, just pocket it. Satan tempts a man to covetousness or extortion under the pretense of providing for his family. Thomas Brooks said, by temperament and personality, by upbringing and family history, the devil knows your vulnerabilities. Whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, the devil will help it forward. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations, precious remedies against Satan's devices where he said that. Let me translate that for you. We're all wired differently and we all have vulnerabilities to sin. For some, we're more melancholy and given towards depression and self-pity and, and brooding. And the real temptation is to start listening to yourself and start believing lies. For some, substance abuse, self-medicating, Alcohol, prescription drugs are a real prescription, a real temptation to take the edge off. 
makes life a lot easier to lie. For some sexual fantasies, addictions, pornography, it's an escape to steal pleasure because God hasn't delivered the goods for you sooner and real intimacy's just too hard, so why bother? It's a banquet in the grave. For some, the finer things of life, the endless desire to accumulate just a little bit more and more, nicer cars, nicer toys, and the endless maintenance that slowly consumes your time, your affections, and your energy that the Bible says, choke the word. And for some, maybe you're naturally, everybody loves you and you're a sweethearted person, but it eats at you constantly as you're desperately looking to others for approval, significance, and worth. And then some struggle with bitterness. They just can't forgive. They have a hair-trigger temper. They get angry. And the enemy just loves to come along and just fan that flame. And we're all wired differently. I was talking to a brother this week that was really depressed, discouraged. And he kept saying to me, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to help me. I want to say, man, you're, that's a lie. Like even Jesus went and got his friends as he was struggling. We, we need each other in this battle. And Brooks goes on to say, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies and Satan's Devices, says if, if, they're, if, they're, if they're in prosperity, Satan will tempt you to deny God. And if we're in adversity, he'll tempt you to distrust God. And if our knowledge is weak, he'll tempt you to have low thoughts of God. And if your conscience is tender, he'll tempt you to scrupulosity. And if you have a large conscience, he'll tempt you to carnal security. And if you're bold-spirited, he's going to tempt you to presumption. And if you're timorous, to desperations. I always try to get you to fly off. But the essential root behind it all as Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, they all say the same thing. Here it is. Roland Bainton in his excellent book on Martin Luther entitled Here I Stand, he summed up Luther's struggle with the devil with this. The content of his depressions was always the same. The loss of faith that God is good and that he's good to me. Let me flesh that out. God's being harsh. God's being unjust. He doesn't care about me. He's wronged me. I deserve better. God was good. He wouldn't have allowed this to happen. He's forgotten about me. How can life seem so arbitrary or random or nasty? There must not be a good God behind all this. And then he goes deeper. I must have married the wrong person. It was a mistake. God wants me to be happy. I'd be happier alone. I think I'd be happier she says, if I was with him, and he says, if I was with her. You see how the devil started here and got you over here? It's lies. And we got to take up shield of faith, start extinguishing arrows, putting on the belt of truth and reminding ourselves of the truth. The truth. J.C. Ryle, in his, in his chapter called The Fight, I commend it to you. It's easy to find. Google it. It's in his book, Holiness. He had... He has some great quotes, but he has this one quote about the general, and he doesn't name the general, but he says the general says, in a time of war, it is the worst mistake to underrate your enemy and try to make a little war. You never want to make a little war. If you're going to go to war, you go to war to win it. This is not a little war. So there can't be just a little reading, a little prayer, a little fellowship, a little bit of church. Come every once in a while. Minimal compliance, just so people think I'm part of this. 
John Piper's famous quote, life is war. That's not all it is, but it's always that. But most people don't believe this in their hearts. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things. They believe we're in peacetime, not wartime. Very few people think they're in a war that's greater than World War II or any imaginable nuclear war. Few reckon that Satan is a much worse enemy than any earthly foe or realize that this conflict is not restricted to any one global theater, but in every town, every city in the world. Who considers that the casualties of this world do not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life? They lose everything, even their souls, and enter a hell of everlasting torment. Until we feel the force of this, we will not pray as we ought. He says, prayer is the walkie-talkie of the church on the battlefield of the world in the service of the word. It's not a domestic intercom to increase the temporal comforts of the saints to call up some more pillows so we can be a little more comfy. It's for those who are on active duty. And in Revelation 12, John gives us this heavenly perspective of Ephesians 12 that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. And Paul now changes his imagery. He's got the soldier imagery, but now he's got the, the in Ephesus, there was these like Olympic games in the theater and they, they would do the, what we would call MMA, mixed martial arts. And this is, this is hand-to-hand combat. And we're doing MMA against rulers and authorities and cosmocrats. This is heavenly rulers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is how John describes what he saw in Revelation 12. He said, war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Until you know you're deceived, you'll never know the truth. Until we know we're children of darkness where we've been born, we'll never understand what it means to be children of light. He was thrown down to the earth and the, his angels were thrown down with him. Paul describes it like this, this deceiver of the whole world. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus put it like this. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You have your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you're not of God. There's a deceiver of the whole world. And the devil has his own gospel. He has his own servants. He has his own apostles. He has his own churches. And the book of Revelation calls them the synagogue of Satan. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and usually found on TV right about right now. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Back to Revelation 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's attacking the church. How does the, how does the dragon, the devil, make war on the church? Lots of answers. Here's a few. Jesus said in Luke 8, 11, that the seed is the word of God. And the, one, the ones along the path are those who heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word, steals it from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. The devil takes the word from you. Is he taking the word from you? Are you reading it regularly? The devil works through anger and conflict. Be angry. Do not sin, Paul says. Do not let the sun go down on your, on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The devil works through bitterness. He works through unforgiveness. I've seen nothing like bitterness take down people in the church. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake of the presence, for for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted or taken advantage of by Satan. We are taken advantage of by Satan when we fail to forgive. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. The devil works through pornography, sexual immorality. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, to married people, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The devil works through pride. Simon, Simon, Jesus said, behold, Satan has asked and demanded to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Peter, before this night is over, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. The devil works through pride. The devil works through our sinful trust in man and our abilities and our resources. We think we've got it all. We're good. 1 Chronicles 21.1 Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. We like to be strong. Have a nice portfolio. Nice retirement account. Nice everything padded. Everything good. I got a good friend who's a church planner. He's on sabbatical right now. It's been hard. And he was telling me that one day he was just so exhausted. He was just wiped out. He's got a great wife. And she said to him, you're really weak this morning, aren't you? You're feeling really weak. And he said, yeah, I am. I just feel really, really weak. And she said, now don't you despise that feeling. What did she mean by that? Don't despise that feeling. God's got you right where he wants you. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. But when you think, oh, I I know, I feel really strong. I'm good. I'm ready. (laughs) Peter time. Watch out. 
Remember who you are in Christ this morning. Is there any hope for us? Some of us are fallen. We're all prone to wonder. We get hit in this war. None of us gets, comes out of here unscathed. The enemy's going to get through with some of these. And so some of us think, well, man, if he's going to get through, I might as well just abandon my armor. No. When we're in battle, we have to take the belt of truth and fight in the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and what? He might flee from you. He'll think about fleeing from you. What does the word say? He will flee from you. We take up the belt of truth. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Remember who you are in Christ. That's what the idea of the helmet of salvation that's how Martin Luther would fight against the devil. The devil would wake him up and would pound him and pound him. And he would tell the devil, look, we're to work during the day and sleep at night. I got to go to sleep, devil. Leave me alone. And the devil would start reminding him of sins. And he'd always remind the devil of a few more. But, but devil, you forgot this sin and that sin. Oh, and he would mock the devil. But he would remind the devil, devil, Jesus died for sinners. And you keep saying I'm a sinner. Well, I turn that around on you and cut your throat. I am a sinner. And Jesus died for sinners. Who are we now in Christ? J.C. Ryle, in this book, on the chapter on the fight, in his book, Holiness, he said, the Christian fight is good because it's fought under the best of generals. Let me tell you about this general. J.C. Ryle says he's the leader and commander of all believers. He's our divine Savior. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a Savior of perfect wisdom, infinite love, almighty power. The captain of our salvation never fails to lead his soldiers to victory. He never makes any useless movements. He never errs in judgments, and he never commits any mistakes. His eye is on all his followers, from the greatest to them even to the least. The humblest servant in his army is never forgotten. The noblest and most sickly is cared for, remembered, and kept unto salvation. The souls whom he has purchased and redeemed with his own blood are far too precious to be wasted and thrown away. Surely this is good. We have the general, and that general has gone before us, and now he intercedes for us. And we're to remember what Christ has done for us. We're told in Colossians 2 that when we were when we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh that God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, not some of them, all of them. How? By canceling the record of debt. He wiped it out, blotted it out, the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when he did that, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Sound familiar? These cosmocrats have been disarmed. They've been put to open shame. He triumphed over them, and we triumphed over them in him. Jesus has won the victory. And now he's given us his spirit, and we're told what? That greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Young people, new communicants, 
Who will bring any charge against God's elect, against you? It's God who justifies. It's God who makes us right with him. Who is to condemn? Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Come to him as we come to his table. Lord, you are what we need this morning. There's a big battle, and we thank you for a big, big Savior. Our general, our captain, who has bound the strong man and is plundering Satan's domain and bringing him into the, out of darkness and into the dominion of light. And we were once children of darkness, and now we are children of light. And so give us the strength now to walk as children of light, finding out the things that please you, doing what is acceptable and pleasing to you. We give you our sins. Thank you that you were crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgression. The punishment that we deserve fell upon you, and by your stripes we have been healed. And so we come running to you afresh this day. Apply the gospel grace to our hearts. And may we believe. And may we go forth in grace. Meet us now at your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.